What's going on, everybody? Hotep to the family. Ashe to all the people out there. Welcome back to my unapologetic perspective here on the Mighty Motivation Network. This is the podcast where we give our point of view of controversial topics from my experience, black history, and our knowledge as African Americans. In the words of Maya Angelou, do your best until you know better, and when you know better, do better. So it's important to search for information to discover what you don't know so you can discover your best you. Um, I'm joined today by my co-host. To the right of me is Shaquan Battle. I mean, hello. <laughs> and to the right of him is Jerome Battle. Did you miss us? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I want to appreciate everybody that's been going in, tuning in to all of our episodes. Um, everybody that showed us love, everybody that comments, shares. Um, we're going to continue to talk about that because, you know, we, uh, we are thankful for everything. We're thankful for anybody that listens to a one-minute clip or anybody that listens to an entire episode. Um, we appreciate everybody. We love everybody. And we're just trying to um, make people think. We're trying to uh, encourage people to do their research. Um, which just brings me to a uh, shout-out to um, the movie The Harder They Fall. Harder They Fall. Uh, beautiful Western. Um which we did an episode on and everybody that we talked about pretty much in our episode was portrayed in that movie. Um, again, the storyline isn't true, but the characters, the characters were 100% real. And boy, did I love that movie. Ain't the only one. So uh, you watched it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'll probably watch it for a second time today. Absolutely. Um, and I gotta give a big shout out to Regina King. I mean, what she does is phenomenal. That's right. What she does is absolutely phenomenal. Of, because um, I believe she was one of the producers on this movie, That's right. right? And played with Treacherous. Judy. She played, uh, yeah, Treacherous Gertrude Smith. Yeah. Um, did a phenomenal job. Uh, only, only gripe I have is the characterization of Stagecoach Mary. I when I think of Stagecoach Mary. I think of somebody more, more towering. Yeah, um, a Viola Davis, Queen Latifah, somebody like that that probably could have played that role better. But I'm not mad at, you know, giving the, somebody of, of lighter skin the opportunity, somebody uh, probably younger the opportunity. But um, also gave the opportunity to show her in the fashion of love. Yeah. Because she's not depicted that way in any history. Right. Any history writings. So. Yeah, she's just very manly that drinks with, Absolutely. The, with the shotgun. Absolutely. Um, but she fought like a man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. She surely fought like a man. Yeah. yeah so. so shout out and shout out to all of the people who watching it. It's streaming number one on Netflix now. I wish I had a round of applause to to be able to do, but people are really showing out watching the movie. Um, again, go back and and research the real characters. Go back and um do more research about our history because it doesn't stop there. And I'm glad we had an ep uh, opportunity to talk about it on this podcast because I'm watching the movie. I'm smiling through the whole movie because I'm like, these are people that we researched and we talked about before on this podcast. It is very violent. <laughs> it is. It is. Very violent. Okay. So, But uh, comedy, it had comedy in it, had history in it. It had uh, violence in it. It had love in it. it had, it's your, it's a, a great Western. It's a great Western. That's right. Um, uh, so let's jump right in. Let's jump right in. Uh, I don't want to waste no time. Um, I wanted to do the episode today of just uh, kind of piggybacking on what we were talking about last episode. Last episode, we were talking about why we do this podcast. And let's just go a little bit more in depth to some uh, maybe more personal situations. Um, so I want to do, you know, having an uncomfortable conversation with a black man or uncomfortable questions answered by a black man. Um, one of the, the first question I wanted to ask and, um, dad, I'll give it to you first and then Shaquan, I'll let you, um, go and then I'll go, which is when did your first experience with racism occur that you noticed occurred and how did you react to it? And then after you tell me that, you know, what would be your, what would be your advice to the youth today on how to handle that certain situation? Mine's going to be a little unique because it wasn't uh, a racist or prejudice act specifically against me. Mm -hmm. um, for those that know, don't know, I was born and raised in Washington, D.C. 
the original chocolate city, <laughs> right? And I say that because that's important because in the 70s, uh, DC's African-American population exceeded 70% of the city, mm -hmm. was 70% black, right? We lived in Southeast, um, which at that particular time and even now it's referred to as Capitol Hill, mm -hmm. but you don't hear it represented in the term of Capitol Hill because most people think of Capitol Hill yeah, being the, the Bill, White House right? and the yeah. Capitol and all that. And not associated with, you know, greater Southeast D.C. Mm -hmm. because of, like I said, it's populated by mostly blacks, um, poverty stricken. It was during the 60s and the 70s. Um, but that is where I experienced my first episode of racism and prejudice. Um, our community, when I say predominantly black, it was all black mm -hmm. and schools, stores, everything. There was one white family that lived in the vicinity that we lived, and I'm talking blocks, mm -hmm. and he lived right next door to us. And it was so rare that everybody referred to him as the white man, mm -hmm. the white guy. Everybody, even teachers at my school, you live next door to the white guy, mm -hmm. you know. So uh, that was that was the narrative, and you would think that in that situation that individual would have been less likely to be racist or prejudiced, <laughs> right? Because he purchased the house in a predominantly black city right. in an all-black neighborhood. No, it was not. This guy was as racist as they come. And whenever we play with any type of projectile, ball, frisbee, anything that could be thrown, it went in his yard. If you went and got it, he would treat you like a slave master talking to a slave, mm -hmm. literally. And it didn't matter whether you was a child, female, male, adult, didn't matter. He talked to everybody that was the same way. Mm -hmm. uh, we used to even joke that he wouldn't call the cops. And people said, why wouldn't he call the cops? Because the officer was going to be black. <laughs> so he didn't want to talk to a black officer. He didn't want the mailman to come on his property. Why? Because the mailman was black. Right? So for me, that experience was... It seemed to be accepted mm -hmm. by every black person in the community that the guy was racist, stay off his property, and everything will be fine. But what happened is, I think that that set the tone for how many black people dealt with racism. Mm -hmm. You accepted it. You dealt with it and you moved on. Mm -hmm. The problem is it didn't cause change because mm -hmm. nobody really discussed it. Mm -hmm. Right. I remember talking to my mom about it and my mom said, that's just how some people are. Mm -hmm. Right. And you have to look past it. And I think during the 60s and 70s, we did. Mm -hmm. um, now, remember, this is still after civil rights. You know, I, I was born in 1969. So I'm, I'm talking about experiences that happened in the mid 70s. The mentality of the people was still just deal with it. Mm -hmm. So. When I put that in real perspective, I think a lot of things happen. One, that helped develop my mentality regarding discrimination mm -hmm. and prejudice. That I didn't want to just be a person to accept it. What I wanted to do is find out a way how to overcome it, which goes back to something we talked about on previous podcasts. I firmly believe that education is an equalizer mm -hmm. in certain situations. One of the biggest problems that white America have with black America is that they don't understand us. Mm -hmm. They can't come. They feel like they can't communicate with us. So how do you overcome that? Become more educated to where you can communicate better. Mm -hmm. Right. You carry yourself different. Like I said, the biggest problem they have is that they stereotype us. Mm -hmm. I still feel that uh, pre disqualifying somebody and stereotyping somebody based on race is the biggest form of oppression and prejudice that you could possibly have. Right. So you overcome that by being more educated, being respectful and carrying your way in a certain manner. So that experience as a child with our next door neighbor. Helped develop my perception, my understanding, my my narrative regarding race relations I like that. Now, to tell you how I felt about it as a child. It didn't bother me because it didn't bother anybody else. Right. We thought it was funny yeah. because it was the reality. You dealt with it. You moved on. Mm -hmm. You know, so as long as our, our objects didn't go into his yard, it didn't affect me mm -hmm. day to day. There's a difference from a person being prejudiced and somebody forcing discrimination upon you. Mm -hmm. in, other, in other words, 
they're using your race to deny you a job mm -hmm. or a loan. He was denying me access to his property. You could do that even if we were the same color, yeah. right? So it was a little different, and that helped develop my mindset about racism and prejudice, and even and even racism in the terms of can that person do something that is going to negatively impact your livelihood or pursuit of happiness, mm -hmm. right? In this case, it did not. Mm -hmm. It just helped me understand that for some reason, white people despise black people, mm -hmm. you know? And then, like I said, it helped develop my mindset about racism. Right. So it may not have affected you economically. That's right. But it did fate probably affected you mentally. You, more you know, than anything. obviously, I, I, I started thinking about this when you sent me the text mm -hmm. that what the episode was going to be on. And I had a person say, well, how come you never dated outside your race? And I would say, you know, because I'm, a, I'm, I'm attracted to black women, mm -hmm. not not outside of that race. Mm -hmm. However, Part of my experience as a youth could be why I feel that right, way. Right. One, like I said, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood. To go a step further, we only saw the one white guy that lived next door to us. And we only saw white people. We live a couple of blocks from RFK Stadium. Mm -hmm. So every Sunday that the Reds, Washington Redskins at the time had a home game, you would see white people because they were parking our neighborhoods and go to the game. Mm -hmm. So you would see white people. Outside of that, we didn't see white people in our neighborhoods. You know, I asked Granddad the same question when he was here, and he told me the same thing, that he really didn't experience it because he didn't see anybody. We didn't see him. Yeah, right. Yeah, we mm -hmm. didn't see him. You know, and, and what we saw, the other the other part, let me tell you, part of, the positive part about that environment, we saw black people in a different narrative than what you hear about black people in history books, mm -hmm. right? We saw black business owners when I was seven and eight years old, mm -hmm. right? We saw black police officers. Um, from the from 1978 to 1994, we had a DC had a black mayor, Marion mm -hmm. Barry. Mm -hmm. So not only did you have blacks in politics, you had a black mayor mm -hmm. um, who obviously got convicted of a crime. Guess what? He got out, came back, and won again. <laughs> you know, so you're not going to hear that about him because, of course, he he did some bad things as a human being. Mm -hmm. um, but we saw black people in a different light in DC where a lot of communities, a lot of cities, a lot of states didn't have that depiction of right. them. We did. We had right. that. So I think that helped develop, again, helped develop my mindset about how I view racism and prejudice. And, and I, I, I know, I don't want to shortchange this episode. Give me your mentality of going from D.C. to Bedford, <laughs> Woo! That's a culture shock. Yeah. You know, I went from being in, a, in classrooms that was all black, from student to teacher to principal um, to an environment where most of the classes I was in, I was the only black. Right. Um, and for for those that haven't had that experience, you want to talk about an uncomfortable position. Right. That is probably the most uncomfortable position that you could take a black person and put them in, especially when they've never been in that environment before. Yeah. So for for me, that was scary. Mm -hmm. And I remember telling my mom, and my mom said, you know, you know the reason that is, it's not because there's not that many blacks. It's because you're in a classroom that doesn't warrant that many blacks right. because of your, your level of intelligence. Accept that. And what you want to do is, this is where I learned this concept. When you're in certain situations, you can't only be good. You have to be better than the counterpart. Mm -hmm. So for me, I pointed out, found the smartest kids in the classroom. And I wanted to make sure that I was better than them. Mm -hmm. So I took that situation and said, you know what? I'm not going to be uncomfortable. I'm going to make you feel uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So when they start talking about who got the best grade in class, my name better be called. Mm -hmm. So I, I accepted that challenge and said, I'm not going to be the black student in the class. I'm going to be the one that says, huh, he's smart. Mm -hmm. Not he's smart for a black person, but he's smart period, right. in the right. story. So I used that as motivation. Right. But it was uncomfortable mm -hmm. as hell. Absolutely. Shaquan, same uh, question. I think the first time I actually realized it was freshman year in high school. Um, I remember walking down the hallway. I still remember what I had on. I had on a all-black Yankee hat that was probably two sizes too big. The jacket was <laughs> was a 4X. The, my pants was a 40, 32 um, with, a, with a white tall tee on underneath it. And I was walking with a group of white people. They had they had some, and 
you know, she she told me to take my hat off. I said no, of course. And she looked at me and said, when you graduate, if you graduate, you're going to be in jail. And I'm like, for one, I mean, then I laughed it off. You know, I didn't know that. I didn't know that that was racist. Mm-hmm. Um, for me being the only black, and she only told me to take my hat off, and you know, for me to be rebellious and say no, and for her to say, "You gonna, you gonna be in jail." And then I, you know, as I got older, I thought about how that probably affected me. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you had been to prison, uncles had been to prison, family has been to prison, and she was putting something on my life that I didn't know at the time that she was putting on my life. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was the that was the first time I experienced racism. And like Dad said, a lot of times, not because I was smart, but a lot of times, I, you know, once you get to middle school, you get to Montvale, Daxton, Big Island kids. And a lot of times I was the only black in the, in the classroom. Mm-hmm. And I would be so nervous to even say anything because I was the only black. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't know how they would receive me. Didn't know how they would, would perceive me, but they would just stare at me. Yeah. Like they had never seen a black person before. Right. And that's, that makes you even more uncomfortable because you're thinking what's making me so different than you mm-hmm. when we're, we're both sitting in the same classroom, getting the same education. Right. But um, I, I think about what Jay said on so ambitious. He said, I felt so inspired by what my teacher said that you either be dead or be a reefer head. Not sure if that's how mm-hmm. those should speak to kids. Yeah. That's right. Because I, I, I don't think that, Number one, that shouldn't be a narrative that you put on a kid. Right. right. That if you don't do your work, you're going to be in prison. Right. If That's you right. don't follow the rules, you're going to be in prison. Because there, there are rules and there are laws, okay? That's right. Those are not the mm-hmm. same type of concepts. Right. Everybody breaks rules mm-hmm. some way, form, or another. Um, and just when you put that into, especially a black kid, who probably half people in this family that's been incarcerated mm-hmm. or is incarcerated, you think that that is a narrative for African-Americans and that is a, because right. for be honest with you, how many teachers have you heard tell that to a white student? None. That if, if you don't do that, oh, you're going to be in jail. It's, it's just going to be a failure. Yeah. Not necessarily in prison. You gonna may have a lower job, but not necessarily in prison. Right. And um, do you think your reaction, would you, if somebody in high school went through what you went through, what would your advice be to them? Would you think your reaction was, Good or I think my reaction for the time and where I was at mentally was good because had I been, you know, as uh how can I put this? As outspoken as I am now, um, that probably would have went a totally different way. Mm-hmm. Um back then I was just so naive. I was fifteen, I was just having fun in the hallway laughing and joking. I just blew it off. Mm-hmm. Um but I, what I would say to a kid now, if if that's said to them, is tell that teacher, don't put that on my life. Right, absolutely. Don't put that absolutely. on my life. Absolutely. Um, my first experience came in fifth grade. Fifth grade. Um, we were playing basketball, and he called me a nigger. And initially, I didn't do anything about it. But there was a Filipino kid who who decked him. Right there, he as soon as he said it, it was like clear reaction, decked him, and we went into we went uh, we came from recess, we went into um, the classroom, and everybody's standing behind their desk, ready for their bus to be called, a car rider to be called, and the teacher had left the room, and he said it again. I didn't hear him say it, but the people up front, because my my desk was in the back, his was in the front, the people up front heard him say it, and he turned beat red because everybody looked back at me like, he said it to you again. So I went up there, and I punched him. Now, I don't know how I knew it was wrong for him to say it. I don't know how he knew it was wrong for him to say it, and I don't know how everybody in the entire classroom knew he was wrong for saying it. But in the fifth grade, we all knew that was something he was not supposed to say to a black person. I don't know how, but... We did. Um, what I say that my actions was justified for decking them at the time, yeah, because what it showed was you are not allowed to say this to me, yeah. and it showed everybody else this is the consequences if you say this. Right. Because I know 
more than just me, you know, fault people for saying that word. You know, all through school, we've seen people fight for that word. But as I look at it from another perspective for the people who are listening, I think we have to teach our kids that reacting to it is what they want. Mm -hmm. Because if you fight somebody for telling for saying that to you, you're gonna be fighting for the rest of your life. You know, as an as a thirty one year old right now, if somebody said that word, my first initial response would be, "Yo, I want to fight," because that's instilled from me from the fifth grade that that was my first reaction. And racist people want you to think that way because it put us back into that box that you always talk about. So if I call you that word and it's a trigger for you, then it makes you the angry black man, the violent person. The ignorant person, the person that's going to get in trouble because if you hit me, those charges filed, you were incarcerated. It brings back the narrative that racist people want. So I want black people to be to be probably more proud of themselves to understand that that word shouldn't affect you because you're not that. Mm-hmm. Um, because the word, do, I, I advise anybody to listen to uh, Dr. Uh, Kaba Kamene or KRS-One talk about the origins of the word, beautiful origins of the actual word um, that was used discriminatory by racist people. But we've taken the word, I know a lot of older folks may not agree with this, but we've taken that word and brought it back to another form of endearment. You know, if you was to call somebody my nigga and you're black, that's not discriminatory. That's a form of endearment that we understand, but my advice to white people is that word is not cool for you to use at all. Right. Whether you reciting lyrics or a movie line or whether you, you got t- mixed kids. Yeah. You telling a story and the dialogue happened to have the word in it because when you, when we hear that word coming from somebody other than a black person, it's discriminatory in our eyes and you should respect those boundaries to not do that. If you res- truly respect black people. That's right. So when I look at it, um, my actions, I don't regret it. Because even to the day, I still have conversations with this person. He he still apologizes to this day for doing that. But um, I think sometimes we have to take their emotions out of it because it, we can't allow that word to affect us forever. On because that's exactly the one thing that they're going to use to it's, it's tough gain though. gain control over. It's us. tough though if you it, look it is. at what happens that you see on the news daily, right? How black people are being treated on a regular basis. Even if you don't watch the news, you hear about it in the streets or you may even see it. You may even see people go through it. You may have somebody in your family that got convicted of the same crime a white person did and ended up with the longest sentence. It happens. Yeah. So I will never tell somebody how to feel. Yeah. And if somebody calls you a nigger and you feel some kind of way about it, it's no different than if they call you a bitch. Yeah, you have have every right to. So you're going to feel a certain way. And then a lot of times you're going to react the way you feel, because ultimately we all know if you tell somebody don't do that again, the question, the media question is, or what What are you going to do? What's the consequence? People say fighting doesn't solve anything. I say bullshit. That's how we got America, <laughs> right. right? So at the end of the day, fighting can solve something because one, I'm gonna feel better, yeah. right? Two, you're not gonna say that to me again because right. you know what the consequence is, right? right? Every time so, you say that, we're gonna have to fight. Every time you say it doesn't matter whether it's nigga, bitch, whatever, mm-hmm. whatever it is, you won't say it again, right? Right. So I realized that the 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 right thing to do is probably not that. Yeah. But at the same time, and, and people can call it what I'm just being honest. That's what that's what this this dialogue is. It's about. the solution that works. It, it, it's the yeah. solution that works. Right. And it's immediate. Yeah. Right. I ain't gotta wait till next week. I ain't gotta wait to have a meeting about it and then have a discussion about it. It's gonna be immediate. Mm-hmm. You won't say it again. Right? Especially in school, because in school it's the the principal is gonna ask, did you say this? That's right. If you think about it, most white people who do not call black people niggers, it's not because they don't feel that way right. or because they don't use that word. It's because they, they probably got punched in the face. Absolutely. <laughs> it's because I know it's probably going to happen because you guys are violent. Okay, yes. whatever. But you're not going to say it. And at the end of the day, we don't care why you don't say it as long as you don't say yeah. it. Right. Right. Because it makes us feel some kind of way. I mean, every time you go into a store that's owned by a white person, they're probably calling you a nigga or, or something along that lines in their mind, yeah. right? Uh-huh. But as long as they don't call you, they can get your money, right? Yeah. right. So at the end of the day, it does have, you, you can get an immediate result. 
yeah that that you want that person not calling it calling you that again absolutely i put i put that up there with with uh like you said bitch but uh suck my i put uh that's right you, you got to be prepared when you call somebody that you got to be prepared for whatever comes the with that, that come uh with. like you know in high school and i and i don't think my man was racist um but rest in peace to him because he did pass away i don't think he was racist i think he was influenced by the people he was hanging with so when he called me that in class, he didn't know what was gonna come after that. So he knew but, after that, but but after he <laughs> but after he said it, I was like, okay, wait till after class. Right. And and I I think for him, he still didn't understand what was going on because when the bell rung, he got on and went. Mm-hmm. But of course I ran down on him, but and then, you know, when we went to the principal office, the black principal said, Shaquan, when you see him again. What are you going to do? Because he knew. He knows what that word does to us. Right? Yeah. And he said, what are you going to do? If I suspend you today and you come back tomorrow, what are you going to do? I said, no matter how long I'm out, out of school, when I come back, we're going to fight. And he was like, sit right here until the day over. So when the bell rung, of course, he wasn't in there. So I left out, found him. I fought him. And the... uh. The uh the sheriff that was what, what do you call those the resource, the resource officer. officer he came I remember white resource officer he came in the office and he looked at me and he said y'all just won't learn will you and they, the dad didn't want to press charge that's how I knew the kid wasn't racist he was acting how his friends acted that's right. the when the um resource officer was the one to press charges we had to go to court. The dad was mad because he had to take a day off from work to come to court. For something Mm -hmm. he didn't agree with. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He didn't want to file charges, but the resource officer went went upon himself to to file. I was on, I had two years probation. One year was suspended. I I had to be on good behavior for a whole year. That was historical. That was the first case where they pressed criminal charges against a student having a fight with another student. Mm. Historic. Great answers, y'all. Great answers. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. And we are back. Go to YouTube, type in Mighty Motivation Network, and hit the subscribe button. Catch up on all the latest episodes. Go to Facebook, type in My Unapologetic Perspective. Catch up on all the latest clips and news. Um, And we're going to move right along. Vic, I got a question for you. Yes, man. yes, sir. Um, a lot of times, you and D-Rob were the only black classes that y'all was in whether it was foreign language or whatever um how how did that how was that different for y'all two uh in when number one it made us uh kind of made us work harder and be more focused because if you don't have some of your friends in the classroom you don't have anybody to talk to and it made us really um clamp down on what needed to be done um, but it was tough, man, especially history class. Uh, I can't stress that enough. You know, I remember Miss Reeves, she, you know, she asked my permission, um, rest in peace, Miss Reeves. She asked my permission to be able to watch, um, what's the, uh, Civil War movie with Denzel, uh, Glory. She asked my permission. She said, if, if I show this movie, will you feel away? I said, no, that's one of my favorite joints. Right. So we watching it, but watching it in that setting was different because every time like the white commanding officer would say nigga, everybody would turn back it. and look at me. And it, it makes you feel uncomfortable. Um, but you don't think about a lot of that stuff until you actually is out of that situation. Right. You know, it was just normal behavior, you know, even with even in normal classes, not just advanced classes, in normal classes, there was only Four black students at 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 the most. You know what I'm saying? So it wasn't something that we weren't used to. It was just like, okay, we're smart enough. To be, I'm gonna keep it real. We're smart enough to be here with the white student, with the small right, white right. student. So let's let's show why why we belong. You know what yeah, I mean? Absolutely. You know, my mom used to say, "They sitting in the same place you are." Yeah. <laughs> it makes them any different or better than you. They sitting in the same place you are. Right. You know. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, and and. Something Eugene used to tell me, my brother Eugene used to say, he said, you know, 
as, as long as they understand it's just a fucking movie. Because <laughs> <laughs> when, when they first started showing Roots on, on regular TV, uh, a lot of white people was uncomfortable with, with the movie. So when they talked about it in school, you know, people used to say, yeah, he whooped Kunta Kinte, and Eugene used to say, yeah, as long as you understand, that's a movie. <laughs> right? That's a movie. Keep it in perspective. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. Um, I'm moving to the second question. Shaquan, I'm going to you first. Was there ever a time where you felt ashamed to be black? Why did it make you feel that way? And what may have made you come out of that mentality? <laughs> Absolutely. My name alone made me feel uh, ashamed of being black, especially at a young age when, when you're in class and you know you got John, Bill, Blake, uh, Sarah, Amber, Ashley, and because my name started with a B, it was always first in attendance, so yeah. it would be Sha Sha. Um, yeah. I don't want to say I don't want to say it wrong. Um, Shaquin, and I'd be like Shaquan, and then Bobby. Uh, you know, it yeah. just went the regular name. So for me, it was it, it started with my name. Um, after that, it was once I got to middle school and I'm in Mr. King's class and everybody's white and I'm black and we're asked to read out loud and you know that's black people don't like doing that. Yeah. So you got to sit there and you nervous because you're like, man, I don't want to mess up because everybody reading so perfect in here. And when they get to me, they probably think I can't read because I'm black. So those things, I think a lot of it was in my head. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of it was I wasn't really confident in myself when it came when it came to school. That's why I was a class clown, because if I can make you not get it, now it's two people sitting there not getting it. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, uh, yeah, it was definitely my name. Um, but as I get now that I'm older, uh, I love my name. I mm -hmm. love the fact that. When you see my name, you automatically know I'm black. Mm -hmm. Um and I'm and I'm super proud to be black. Once once I started embracing everything, you know, from the baggy clothes to the skinny clothes down to uh to the music to sports, you know, black is beautiful. Mm -hmm. Black is beautiful, black is dominant, black is smart. Um it, it's the it's the outside noise that we let come in to mm -hmm. to uh ruin what we think we are. Absolutely. That well, you know my answer. <laughs> never, never, never have I been ashamed to be black. Mm -hmm. Never, black, and I'm proud from day one. How how was that instilled into you? My dad, my mm -hmm. mom, uh, growing, born, and raised in Washington D.C., the Chocolate City. Yeah, seeing the style, seeing the creativity from mm -hmm. music to the way we dress, uh, to the way we talk, the language, um. And we can even talk about slang, but watching my mom and dad um, be able to talk to people on the street, but then being able to talk to uh, people that were in, you know, in government or uh, held position, high positions in businesses or whatever, seeing that selectivity, um, you know, so I always enjoyed that, loved it from day one. Um, I, I, I've never been embarrassed. Uh, I will say that. I'll say I've never been ashamed, but I have been embarrassed, not for being black, but for black people. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you a great example that you guys can 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 attest to because you were part of it. When we first started doing the Hoopscape program, there were, in particular, two white kids that were coming. Mm -hmm. So the program was predominantly white because it was done at the Ball Diamond, which some people may call Edmund Street Park. And they would be two, at least two white kids that would come. Mm -hmm. And I remember one of them played with the older kids and one played with the younger kids. And I remember whenever somebody was picking the person they were going to guard, they would say, I got the white boy. Mm -hmm. And I would say, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. No, learn his name, mm -hmm. call him by his name. Why? Because if the roles were reversed and you were the only black kid, I know you or your parents would not have wanted them to refer to you as the black boy, mm -hmm. right? So you got to get it right. So at that, when I kept hearing that, because I had to do that every day, yeah, it got frustrating because obviously, I don't under I don't I don't understand how we could then inflict the same type of uh, uh, dissension mm 
mm-hmm. on them that we don't want for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would bother me. But I've seen that in so many aspects of what we do for, for black people. Um, <laughs> so there have been times that I've been embarrassed uh, uh, of what we do, mm-hmm. but not ashamed for being black. Never. Do you respond in a room full of people, maybe at work or in a certain setting where, you know, slick comments are made? to make black people feel ashamed, feel shameful about stuff. Do you respond or do you just? I've been fortunate that I think that, um, I've never been in an environment where people couldn't tell by the way I carry myself that that's not gonna happen, Yeah. right? So I've never been in a situation where, and I've been around some people that I know are racist, mm-hmm. but they've never said anything out the way in my presence. Mm-hmm. In fact, most cases, they probably didn't even say anything when I wasn't around, so afraid that somebody was going to come back and tell me. And and that's not because I feel like I'm a physical threat. Mm-hmm. It's because you know at some point you're going to have to have that conversation, and I'm not necessarily going to have that conversation with you behind closed doors. Right. So a lot of people don't want to have those kind of conversations in front of other people mm-hmm. because at the end of the day, it makes them look like an idiot, mm-hmm. and nobody wants to be an idiot, even if they do agree with what they, they believe. But they know that they can't have a conversation with somebody to justify the things that they may say or think and it makes them look stupid and they don't want to do that especially to a black person you think i'm gonna sit here and let you make me look stupid in front of other white people not gonna happen so they're not gonna say it um so no i've never been in that situation before um the one time well i'm gonna say it's the last time i felt this way um i had it was not long after i became correctional officer again during this time i was probably one of probably the only black guy on my shift and i got to work early and we were talking we were sitting down and they were talking and they were talking about the riots that was happening in ferguson due to uh michael brown being killed and they were just talking about how it was stupid that you know he should have just complied he would everything would have been straight and then you know rioting and loot doesn't help nothing and you know, they were calling, you know, they were calling people animals, but in retrospect, they were just talking about how black people act. And, you know, I felt ashamed at the time for, you know, being black and, you know, being an officer at the moment. I'm like, you know, we, our people got to be better. And then I started reading. I started, you know, diving into history. I started looking at certain cases, uh, interviews, emotions, experiences, explanations politics and what i noticed was i started thinking not just like a black man i started thinking like a human being that's right uh you know michael brown was shot with his hands up unarmed and not even black people should have just been outraged human beings should have been outraged that's right and dr king said you know Whenever people riot, it is the language of, you know, the unheard of. And what it was that, what was it that America failed to hear, which was African-American voices of oppression, uh, police brutality, uh, discrimination, prejudice, all of these things. And then when you look at the history, that 90% of the riots that happened in America happened because it was a racial concept of white people going around just killing black people or rebels against the British. That's right. So this is where most of your riots happen. But the minute it happens in Watts, the minute it happens in Ferguson, the minute it happens in Detroit, is putting that stereotype, oh, black people always riot. But when it happens in D.C. on for the Republicans, it's kind of pushed to the side a little bit. So I began to understand the things that racist America was trying to portray as black people when they did it, but when it was total opposite and it works for white people, it's frowned upon. So from then on, I, I didn't become shameful at it. I became proud. Right. So I understand that when black people do things like that, it's because they are outraged because they're not being heard. And it, it ain't like it happens every day. This happens when you continue to ignore the things that's been going on in this country for 400 years. These are the voices that you've been drowning out. And whenever you don't listen, we're going to mess some stuff up. 
and, you know what I mean? We talked about it before too, and 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 understand. Nowhere are we we saying that we agree with riding or violence. No, but we understand it. But we understand it. The, the, here's the other thing: if not for the riots, will we even heard about the protests? No, right? Will we even known? Mm-mm. So we can go all the way back to Watts, to right. the ride in Watts, and people say, "Well, why would you tear up your own communities?" And that's probably the one I di- I agree with, mm-hmm. right? You don't want to tear up your own communities, but if you did, if you went to another community and do there'd be a whole lot of black people dead. Yeah. Right? Okay. So obviously the objective is to cause change, but you want to go home at night. Mm-hmm. And the way that these riots really work is that it inflicts so much damage on the economy. Mm-hmm. We can even go local for a quick second. When with George Floyd, when they was when they did some protests or they even thought they were gonna do protests yes. in Roanoke. They closed major stores like Walmart and mm-hmm. Cheats. Do you realize what that did to their revenue? Mm-hmm. What it did to the economy? So just the thoughts of it happening closed businesses. Mm-hmm. That's how you make a difference. Right. The next week, the camp, the city council in Roanoke talked about race relations. Yes, absolutely. Right? That's how you invoke change. Right. And so by people, any means necessary. Absolutely. You can call it a ride when we do it and call it insurrection when you do it. You can call it what you want. <laughs> It it causes for conversation ultimately with the goal of getting change. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we've seen. Most a lot of people even think that the conviction for the George Floyd situation happened because of what could have happened if he were if he wasn't that's convicted. Right. Fear fear for what the fallout would be if he was not convicted. Absolutely. So in that case, it actually, you know, like I said, it may not be something that we want to condone, but if it works. We then that's what we have to do. Yeah, we could get it. So we it, it became, you know, when I began to look at, I think people have to look at beyond what's on just on the surface. You know, you have to look at the racial profile and you have to look at side by side situations and see the way that people handle certain situations. You have to understand, again, the chronology of history. Um, but what was the, the second part of that question? What is your advice to someone who was in that stage where they feel like, people shamed them for being black um like just understand understanding history just understanding what took place understanding yourself understanding your identity and 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 be proud of that because some people just talk just to be talking Mm -hmm. let's just be honest with you they have no they have no recollection of of what they're saying they just see black people doing something they say oh stereotyping as we talked about Mm -hmm. but they have no recollection on why that occurs through the chronology of history on what we talk about on this podcast. In terms, um, too, I think sometimes that we get caught up in what people call certain things. We hear them talk about black awareness or a person being awake, right? Mm-hmm. We we look at that and we say, yeah, that's a person who has knowledge of black history. That's not the only part. <laughs> yeah. There's other significant components of that in terms of making sure that you understand that there's great things in black people, yeah. that we've accomplished some great things. We come from greatness. Mm-hmm. There's beauty in you. Mm-hmm because there was beauty in those before you. Mm -hmm. And having that concept, develop that narrative so that you can feel good about yourself. Just because when you go your first day of school, there's no pictures of the brothers and sisters on the wall, Mm -hmm. but you have them in your mind because you know about them, Mm -hmm. right? So it makes you feel beautiful. What you know when you hear terms like "black is beautiful," why why do you think that term came about? Yeah, it's because so many black people have been disillusioned yep. to believe that black is not beautiful, mm-hmm. right? So you had to have that concept put in the air so you could grasp it and say, "Black is beautiful," and I'm black, which means I'm beautiful, right? Right? We needed that, and we to this day we still need that, so that we don't feel ashamed to be black. So we're not feeling embarrassed to be black. Yeah, I'll be honest, I don't understand us. We do some things sometimes, and I'll talk about uh, one in specific in a minute. We do some things that I don't understand. Right. But I love black people. Right. And I'm not embarrassed or ashamed to be black. We may not get to all of these questions, but I am, I want to jump to this one because I believe it's important because this is something that I've heard said to black people and they have no idea how to answer it. So I kind of want to help with with that. Um, the term oppression has been used in the black community. If a white person were to ask you, how are you oppressed? How will you answer that question that would convince someone who truly does not understand what oppression is or how you are currently oppressed and how they can be an ally to the black growth from there? I'll start with you, Dad. 
You know, this is this is a unique question because I think people, when they look at oppression, they think about slavery, right? Yeah. And that's the only form of oppression that people really understand. Uh, there's so many forms of oppression, oppression, especially when it comes to black people. But let's start with education. Um, we're not getting equal education because we're not getting an accurate account of history and roles of the two Americas in creating the laws, ideals, principles, narratives, opinions, and practices such as racism, hatred, prejudice, and discrimination. We're not getting an accurate account of history. Mm -hmm. It goes back to what we talked about before, and we've said this on previous podcasts. America wants blacks to be subordinate in their role in America, inferior to white America. Yeah. That's a blatant attempt to disregard the prejudices of white America and to keep blacks in that same place that we see depicted every day yeah. in American history and currently, mm -hmm. right? Being inferior, uh, being less than human. Um, we talked about civil rights when we really should have been talking about human rights. It's just the, the, how you would treat a human being based on two general concepts, being an American citizen, being a fucking human being, yeah. right? That's what we wanted. So when we talk about oppression, when you stop those things from happening, we're being oppressed. Mm -hmm. We can go with white America continues to submit and pass laws that negatively impact blacks disproportionately compared to whites. Laws like voter suppression, mm -hmm. yeah. right? Uh, laws like um, not wanting to teach critical race theory in school. Um, laws that are going to, in Texas at least, remove certain concepts from the history books. So you won't even hear those terms again, which means the real accurate truth about, a history, about American history will be lost forever 50 years from now, right? That's oppression. Mm -hmm. So police brutality, which we just talked about, continues which disproportionately impacts blacks. And go one step further with that one, because this is probably the, the type of oppression that most people are going to be familiar with. Black cops that commit similar acts are prosecuted at a higher rate than white cops, yet white cops commit these atrocities at a higher rate. Mm -hmm. If you Google right now, you will see where three cops were charged just this week mm -hmm. for crimes against citizens that white cops do every day and don't even get charged. Okay. We've talked about the Breonna Taylor situation where one cop got found guilty for his bullet not entering the home of hers went into a, somebody else's apartment, right? You have a situation where a black cop was arrested for firing a weapon at a person that stole their car. She shot at the vehicle. Mm -hmm. Didn't hit it, but shot at the vehicle. They arrested her. Mm -hmm. Right? She's a police officer, <clears throat> off-duty, shopping, somebody steals a car. Mm -hmm. They're prosecuting her. And I know people say, well, she, she endangered other people. Fuck, they endangered everybody in the building <laughs> yeah. when they opened fire on Breonna Taylor's yeah. apartment. But that doesn't matter, right? Why? Because the cops was white, suspects was black. Yeah. Right? So you want to talk about oppression? If that's not a clear definition, how much time you got? Yeah. We can right. give you some more. Yeah. Right? When I think about that, I think about uh, rest in peace, Bokum Jean, um, when the woman entered his home that she quote unquote said thought it was her home and shot Bokum dead as he sat on the couch. Um, did did she get time for that? She did five years. Yeah, she did. She did. Which is clearly not a not enough. Which means she'll be out soon. Yeah, yeah, let let those roles been reversed and Bokum would have had a lot more time than five years. It was either ten or five. I think she might have got ten and might be out in five. Yeah, parole. yeah, might be something. She didn't like get that. nearly what yeah. a black person would have would have gotten. Yeah. Right. Them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm not the token black person that's like Larry Eldridge or nothing like that, right? Who you can use to say, look, they're not oppressed when 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 black people talk about black people being oppressed, we're not just talking about us individually. We're talking about us as an entire community or an entire race. So am I a black person that went to college? Absolutely. Did I, am I a black person that got a home loan? Absolutely. Am I a certain person that got through certain doors because of my own hard work? Absolutely. But I know there are African-Americans in other places who were not afforded the same opportunity as me. 
And I know there's some people that's my friends that did not have the same opportunity as me. It's because of the situation that they have been placed in through a chronology of history, through a chronology of laws being passed that did not afford them the same opportunities because in some systematic way they were oppressed. So I know African-Americans doing time for things that white kids get probation for. I know people with money that can get into doors and out of trouble, not just because of the color of their screen, because of the color of their money, because they got green. That's right. You know, and their connections. Privilege doesn't just come with right now. Privilege comes from the position that your family has been in to be able to afford you the opportunity. Black people today, we always talk about we want to create um, generational wealth. Most white people already have generational wealth that was created through slavery or Jim Crow that was pushed on our ancestors that allows some of the white people today or racist people today to have what they have that we don't have because we're starting from scratch in 2021. <coughs> that That is a form of oppression. You know, I know walking into a job, if, if I'm working at, in a place and I see somebody got a job interview and he walked back there with his dreadlocks and a ponytail, I'm worried about him because I know there's a, a chance that he's not going to get the job, not because he's not qualified, because he's got dreadlocks, That's right. because he has an afro, because she's wearing her hair in a natural style. She ain't got the weave in it. She ain't got the makeup on. She's just being her natural self. So when you look at the statistics on that we talked about on the episode that white women and white men make more money than black men and black women even in the James in the same job positions with the same qualifications and the That's same right. degrees. We notice by a huge margin. We know the numbers of mass incarceration. We talk about it a lot on this podcast. We ain't got to go through the numbers. You know disproportionately is African Americans being arrested for crimes that white people commit at a higher rate than black people right. that do more time. We can understand, especially you being a Muslim, know that if you're not Christian in America, it's mm -hmm. deemed as being wrong because most people that identify non-Christian in America would be right. considered minorities. That's right. And it's frowned upon. Whether you're talking about Muslims, whether you're talking about the Santa Maria, the Hoodoo, the Voodoo, Buddhism, Hinduism, whatever the case you want to call it. We can look at politics and know that everybody campaigns for the black vote but knew nothing for the black community. That's right. We know this. But build a statue and say, hey, look, we love y'all. Right. <laughs> we, we, we love you guys. We love you guys. We could look at economics and see that immigrants that just came over unvaccinated is that what most people are saying that we need to do and get billions of dollars. That's right. We And African-Americans, they can get business loans way faster than an African-American can. We can look at education and we know that by billions of dollars, predominantly white schools get more money than predominantly black schools. We can even look at the last governor election with Youngkin who want to give money to more charter schools. Guess who was in charter schools? <laughs> Not black people unless they play sports. <laughs> Guess why charter schools were started? Because of desegregation. That's right. So they said, you know what? We're going to take our kids elsewhere. Come on, we have to understand what's going on. That some that's why these schools won't teach true black history to put us in that narrative to keep us in a place. So this is how oppression happens. I'm not directly saying that 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 that, that, that I'm currently a failure because of white America. What I'm saying is I'm affected more than anybody else in the United States. Our the black race is affected more than anybody else economically educationally, socially, and politically due to the history of America. That's that's what oppression is. That's right. It's not active slavery. It's hidden in between these laws. It's hidden in between the way you determine whether somebody get a job. It's hidden whether you determine somebody way somebody get a loan because we can look at the interest rates on the loan going up. Guess who has the highest interest rates in loans? Black people. Black businesses, black homeowners, black car owners. So when you wonder why black people continue to rent, because they can't afford the interest rate. 
You wonder why black people's cars or homes get repossessed? Because the interest rate for black people is so much higher than anybody else's. This keeps us in debt, and this keeps us from having that generational wealth that people have been afforded due to the whip being on our ancestors' back. That's oppression. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Uh, and we're back. We're going to jump right in for the sake of time. We got, I'm going to find one more question to ask. Um, let's see. I, I like this one. I like this one. Because we talked about this on a previous episode, and I just want to hit home on it a little bit more. Let's drive the nail into the, the coffin with this. Um, if a white leader is looking to make a difference in the black community, what would be your advice to him or her? Why do you think the problems, what do you think the problems are and what are some solutions that you have for him or her? Um, I'll start with this one. Then I'll let, I'll let Shaquan go in the dead. I'll let you close. Okay. Of course, I talked about it on the previous episode is uh, be authentic. You know, if it's for your own personal gain, leave it at home. Mm-hmm. If it's just a word for a campaign that you're never going to follow through, leave it at home. Um, if you're going to bring that new, you're going to bring WSCT and a newspaper to take pictures and say, look what I'm doing for black people. Stay at home. You know, when the cameras are off and the phones are in pockets, um, do you listen, understand, interact, and impact? If you can do those things authentically, the black community will embrace you forever. And there are a few people in our community that black people will always respect and embrace because they did those very things and a few of them still doing that still today um and also you have to ask what you don't understand i've seen so many people try to tell black people what their problems in in the community without actually going in the community asking them what the problem is like you're telling black people what they should be doing instead of actually having conversations to say hey what do you think the problem in the black community is and what should be the solution and here's the thing don't just ask the black token person that you feel comfortable with go talk to somebody who has a different viewpoint on what you are don't just ask the the pastor of the biggest church you know go talk to the activists who may not be religious at all go talk to the teachers go talk to don't just talk to the elders talk to the 22 and under they they can tell you too hell they might be more honest than some of the adults on what the problems is because they they would know what they don't have and they know what they want for their community. That's how some of the best programs happen. When the kids become adults and they realize we didn't have this as kids, this is what we need to put in place. Those are some of the people that you need to talk to because some of the older people are so stuck in their ways, they'll say, oh, the kids don't need that. How you know what the kids need if you don't talk to the kids to figure out what they want to need? So when you begin to talk to people, talk to people who have different viewpoints and you can find out what it is that that that's necessary for to to uplift the black community and of course it's education for me you know we talk about uh we talked about the equal funding that the the unequal funding that the black um that the black places the black schools get don't get you know we have to create better schools you know create better learning opportunities and because if you create more of black educated kids that can find high quality jobs that can change the economic problems that's going on in the community. Don't just throw money to fix the park. When you got kids there that you can instill principles in, education in, that can build and start their own businesses to be able to fix that park or even change the dynamic of the the economic system in that community. Don't just educate the athletes on how to be better athletes. We see that a lot where People come in and the only person they want to talk to is the basketball players to show them drills, show the football player stuff. No, you have to educate the little black kid that's got a lemonade stand. Show them how to how to make the money. Educate the kid who's playing with his toy cars. Explain to him what the parts are on the car. He might want to be a mechanic. Educate the kid that's playing chess. He's thinking two, three moves ahead. Those are the kids that we need to start talking to in our community. It has to be more than just educating athletes educating educating the already all a students you know what i mean so uh of course the next thing is the the police and community relationship you know police officers in my opinion should be assigned to certain neighborhoods 
if so you could create relationships in those neighborhoods you know the public servant should be before the war troop you know we see police officers really have that military war style but you're a public servant first you need to be having conversations with parents you need to be having conversations with kids so when the kids grow up you see them so if they're doing bad y'all already have a rapport with each other to where y'all can have a conversation to where nobody's in danger there's a part on the wire I think it's season five where detective mcnulty is having a conversation with bodie inside who is the drug dealer inside of a store and they're making jokes at each other you know uh don't mess up the count today oh don't break a don't break a pencil point and if something was to happen i'm pretty sure bodie knew that detective mcnulty not gonna pull his gun on me and kill me and detective mcnulty knew that bodie not gonna try to kill me because we have a respect for one another now the game is the game but we have a respect for one another because we i known this kid since he was 14 selling drugs. i know this kid since he was 14 in my community. And we have this conversation and rapport with each other that I'm not going to shoot him if he got his hands up. It's that actually in the show. McNulty actually got mad when Bodie was killed by the ops. But that's just for show's way. But when you have that connection with the community, you can have conversations with the community because they'll respect you enough to not disrespect you. Just to add to that, McNulty on the wire also understood <clears throat> which a lot of cops don't understand is Bodie was an incredible kid. He right. was in a bad situation. Right. So he had to sell drugs. Now, could McNulty, could McNulty, you know, arrest him when he wanted to? Absolutely. But McNulty knew that ain't going to help nothing. No. And, and on the wire, there were police officers that was trying to help some of the young, yep. some younger people on the episodes. Um, go back, go, just go watch that show. It's a great show. Uh, and of course you got poverty. Um, if non-African Americans, have businesses in the African-American community, especially the impoverished communities. They should be helping in that community. Mm-hmm. If why, why, why are you making your money here if you're not going to recycle those dollars where you make money? You know, you don't go to Chinatown and see black people or white people owning stores in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. You don't go to a rich white neighborhood and see a black dude selling merchandise. Why? Because they're not invested into that community. So when you have all of these people who have... um businesses in the black community that's poor and you're taking their money and yet doing nothing for them why do you have a business there and why do you feel like you're profiting there and not giving back how many people are you hiring how many black people are you hiring from this community how many scholarships are you helping to get these people to college or or to help go to these charter schools if you're not helping in that particular area you don't need to be having a business in that area. And that's how white people should think, and that's how black people should think. Yeah, that's right. Um, <clears throat> I would say, uh, and Dad, I know you don't, you don't want to take credit for it, but you you started a not only a family tree, but you started a community tree, which you had a program that branched out to so many different things. Um, I remember when me and Bake was thinking about what we could do for the in the community, we didn't realize we already had something that was in the family. And we, we started it back up. And for us, we had more white kids than black kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you said a lot of a lot now with teachers, with coaches, with mayors, governors, they don't know what the community needs because they're not relatable. Um, coaches can't coach kids because they're not relatable. That's right. Teachers can't teach kids because they, they're not being relatable. I'm not saying you have to be like the kids, but you have to understand, hey, this kid 15, he going to make mistakes. A lot of times these coaches and teachers and new people that they're moving in, they're not from here. They right. don't know the That's history. Right. right. And not even trying to learn. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say be relatable. And one thing you have to always be with black people, because we can spot it a, a mile away, is you got to be genuine. Mm-hmm. If we see that you only in it for a political gain, you in it for financial gain. You're not here for us. We ain't going to want nothing to do with it. Okay. Um, you look at the ball diamond now. The ball diamond has turned into uh, what everyone went to Liberty Lake Park for. Safe haven. Right. Yeah. Safe haven. It, it, it was our safe haven with basketball, with on the playground. Even now, my, my son was having soccer games down there. It was it was white people down there playing basketball like never before. Right. And I was thinking growing up, they wouldn't even, they wouldn't be down here. Absolutely. But you, and that, whose kids made it possible? Yeah. That's right. I, I remember we was having a, that was our last day of who kids when the Charlottesville thing was happening. So we was bringing the community together 
when Charlottesville was doing what they was doing. Um, so I, I would say be genuine, be relatable. And also the, the last thing is you, like Bake said, you can't throw money at it. You can't throw money at it and think, I remember when, now granted, I think black kids should get into tennis, but when they came to us and said, hey, what would, what's one thing you would change about Edmund Street Park? And we said, Leave the get, tennis court. get rid of the tennis court. Because a lot of kids are playing basketball and these two courts are too small. Now, what they did was they got rid of the tennis court, but the second problem was they put the goals too close on the court. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I wish they would have left the tennis court. Yeah. Um, they have room to expand. Yeah. I, I agree with both of you guys. And, you know, if you have a, a leader, and really it doesn't matter the color because the concept is still going to be the same, whether they're white or black. But um, I, I, I think um, my, my grandson's name is, is what I think they, they have to be. Sincere <laughs> battle. They have to be sincere. Bake said authentic. You said genuine. I'm saying sincere. They have to be sincere. And they have to be willing to battle. They have to be willing to, to fight because you're gonna have you're gonna have to fight yeah. to get these things. Um and I, I bet you said it from the very beginning is don't assume that you know what the black community wants, yeah. needs, or is asking. Mm-hmm. You gotta go find out. Because you always have these politicians that go, I'm going to do so much for the black community. I know exactly what you need. <laughs> Who told you? Yeah. I, Who have you been talking to? Yeah, how, how do you know? I mean, if you it, don't even know what the black community is, yeah. you know, so I, I think from, from the beginning, they have to find out what it is we want. And for, for anybody who's listening that probably are thinking, what is it that we want, Right. And, and this would apply to any community because you always need education because we talked about that. We think that's the equalizer. Mm-hmm. You have to have hope. And where you get hope is through education and then financial opportunities, right? Mm-hmm. Whether it be businesses or jobs, opportunities to purchase homes, you need those type of things, economic development. You need those. And you need to have a clear path to get that, right? But I think it's important for white people to understand. Black people don't want to take what you had. We don't want what you got, mm-hmm. right? We don't want to rule the world. We don't want to rule the country. We don't want to rule the state or the cities or even the neighborhoods, right? We don't want to purchase a home on your block and own the block. We don't want that. Mm-hmm. All we want is to have the same opportunities that you have, mm-hmm. right? Which by constitution is pursuit of happiness, mm-hmm. right? We want to be able to pursue our happiness. We want to be able to have the same opportunities that you have without being disqualified because of our race, Mm -hmm. pre-disqualified because of our race or stereotypes, Mm -hmm. you thinking something because we're black and then you're making your decision based on that. That's what we want you to stop doing. That's all we want. Mm -hmm. We're not asking you to give us anything except what we're supposed to be getting anyway by the laws of this country. And I, I think sometimes people think we're, we want more. <laughs> Who said that? We don't want more than what you have. We want to get what you're getting right. yeah. because we deserve it. By, by the laws and the constitution of this country, we deserve it. Right. That's all we're asking for. And we can't get that. So because we can't get that, we have to battle. Mm-hmm. That's what we do. We, we, we have to battle. We have to persevere to be able to fight another day. And that's what we're trying to do. So we're not asking for anything that we don't deserve. Mm-hmm. We deserve this. We don't want reparation. You keep that shit. <laughs> we don't want, we want opportunities so we create our own reparation. Right, right. That's what we want. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, great episode. Great answers. Great authenticity within the answers. Um, thank you everybody for tuning in. If you listen to this episode and you see the clips, Comment underneath, you know, on answering the questions yourself. I want to hear some of you guys' answers. It, it don't have to be politically correct. It's your perspective. And it could be experience. disagreeing with us. Right. We want to hear we, it. We, we would love to hear it. Um, we love y'all. Peace.